quick review of where we were at last week. We're in this parable of the wheat and the tares. And before I give you the review, we should probably go ahead and read the passage just so that you can remember the passage of Scripture we're looking at. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. And I want to read... Um, I want to read both the parable and Jesus' explanation of the parable. So Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, bind up the tares, uh, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. The explanation starts in verse 36. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, the real quick summary this morning. We focused on the two elements last week of the parable that Jesus did not give a specific interpretation of. The first was the phrase, while men were sleeping. An enemy comes to a field that has been sown with good seed and sows bad seed in it. And the parable tells us in Jesus' story that, that he did this, the enemy did this, while men were sleeping. And so we talked about this. And we, we said, well, what can we learn from it? The first, work, the, the, first, um, the first lesson is that Satan does his best work covertly. That is, he does it under the cover of darkness. He does it, he does it when no one is watching. All right, I'm going to be distracted the rest of the morning if I don't stop and do this right now. And I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to embarrass him. Jared, it's really good to see you. How's your baby? Doing well. Home? Amen. 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 We're thankful. We've been praying. We're, we're glad to hear it. So, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, all right. So Satan does his best work covertly. Uh, that is, he does, he does his best work under the cover of darkness. And that's what's meant by men sleeping, right? That when, at a time when he can, <clears throat> when he can take advantage of it, we need sleep. So it's not just a bad thing that men are sleeping. We'll have kind of a negative connotation in a second. But the reality is people need to sleep. And, and the, the point is that, that while the, when there is an opportunistic moment, he takes it. 
right? He takes, he seizes the opportunity. He does his best work covertly. We talked about the fact that he's a deceiver from 2 Corinthians 11, that he's a deceiver, that he, that he works subversively. He works not obviously. He works behind the scenes, that he does his best work in ways that we don't immediately see or pay attention to. And then we also said that not only is it important to pay attention to the fact that he's a deceiver, but that he really works well under cover of secrecy. It's part of what it means that he, he sowed the, the, the bad seed while men were sleeping. He works in secret places. And we talked about the fact that isolation is a factory for secrecy. And I just want to pause here for a second one more time. How many of you have a tendency when, when things are unpleasant, you have a tendency to withdraw to yourself? How many of that, that comes really naturally to you? Please hear this. That's not bad in and of itself, but you need to know the dangers that are associated with that. Right? That there's a particular danger that, that when you're alone and when you get too alone, that's an open door for Satan to do some really dangerous things in a person's life. Isolation takes us to a place that can be very dangerous for us. Uh, and so it's in, it's in isolation that, that this veil of secrecy comes over our lives. And, and in secrecy, bad things happen, whether it's sinful things or whether it's other things. Bad things can happen in those places. That's part of Satan's strategy. He works covertly, so he works through deception. He works through deceit. He also works through secrecy and isolation. These are opportunities for him to work because his works are not easily seen in those circumstances. Make sense? All right. So this is, this is what is intended by, or at least part of what we can learn from, the fact that Satan works while men are sleeping. The second thing is, uh, when we think about, about this warning that Satan works while men are, sleep, are sleeping, it's a call to believers to be awake. So we have Romans 13, this call to wake up, wake up. So the, the, the positive side is, well, sometimes it's just men need rest. There's no, 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 um, no accusation in that. But how many of you know some of us just get sleepy in life because we don't pay attention to the things we need to pay attention to? We just willingly ignore things that need to be ignored. So the call here is, believers, you can't afford to do that. You can't afford to get sleepy in your faith. So the other day, I read, a, I read a, 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 a part of a letter from, from, uh, that was sent out by the Assemblies of God in which they had partnered with Barna, the Barna Institute, to do a, a study of, of uh, believers. And they said um, uh, there, is a, there is an initiative that is being put out by the Assemblies of God to encourage congregations to refocus on Scripture. And the reason, part of the reason is that their study through Barna uh, indicated that only 21% of our, of our constituency engages with the Bible on a regular basis. 21%. 21%. That's a lot of sleepy people. That's a lot of people who aren't awake and paying attention and, and engaging in their faith the way they need to on a daily basis. And I don't say that as an insult. I'm not saying that to like point the finger. 
I'm simply saying this. The call of Scripture is to wake up and pay attention. Right? To, to, you can't go to sleep on your faith. Sundays and Sundays and Wednesdays will not be enough for you. You need to be regularly engaged in your faith. You need to be regularly engaged in your faith. So the call is for believers to be awake while men were sleeping. The second part of the review is this. We focused on the slaves of the landowner last week. That is, these slaves who, when they see the bad seed, what we're told about them is they immediately wanted to take action. Shall we pull them up? Shall we get rid of these, these, this bad seed, these, these bad plants that are growing up? There was a desire to take action. And the second thing we saw is that this desire is restrained in order to prevent harm. All right. Um, you know, real quickly, uh, I think if you polled most of us, you would say that there have, we would find that there have been times when we may have done someone harm by not saying something that should have been said. How many of you can think of some instances in your life where that was the case? But how many of you can think of more instances in your life where you did harm by saying something that should not have been said? Now, it depends on who you are. But I think if you polled people, most people would say, I've done my, harm, my most harm by what I have said than by what I haven't said. Now, I won't go any further than that for now. Because... If we could see how much harm we've done by not witnessing how many times, we'd probably change our perspective a little bit. But the fact of the matter is we all recognize that sometimes in our zeal to say things or to correct things, sometimes we say things at times or in ways that we wish we hadn't later on. The idea here is that this, the, the owner of these slaves is restraining the natural tendency of people to jump in and to try to solve problems that maybe they're not called to solve, to fix things that they're not called to fix. That in our zeal, sometimes we do things that ends up producing more harm than good. One of the most challenging things I think we discover as parents is that as our children gets, get older, we, have, we, we, are, we are changing from a, a position of... of mandating to a position of counseling. And it can be hard to make that change because it means letting go and sometimes not immediately intervening. And that's hard. It's not easy for us. But sometimes we, we realize that, that inserting ourselves, especially if we insert ourselves too forcefully, it does more harm than it does good. Right? And so there's this there's this warning here about what it means to be restrained. And we focused on that last week. To restrain our natural tendency to just jump in and take action. But my brothers and sisters, there's another side to this that needs to be pointed out as well. And in fact, it needs to be pointed out pretty significantly in our day. And that's what I want to do this morning. So let's, let's move on. Let's focus on some of the things that Jesus did interpret for us. So the first one, that it, one, uh, one of the things he did interpret for us is the tares. And he says, what are these tares? Well, they're the sons of the evil one. You see this in verse 38. He says, they're the sons of the evil one. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, here's a, here's a, a description. The tares, they are, one explanation is they're unbelievers. They're unbelievers. They're sons of the evil one. They're unbelievers. They're those that have not placed their trust in Christ. They don't believe in him. 
The second thing we need to point out is that they are unbelievers, and more specifically, it refers to those unbelievers that are engaged in evil. They're plants by the evil one. They're, they're planted by the evil one. At the, very at the very best, just their very presence is negative because it uses up the resources of the soil that should be feeding the good seed. Right? So in a very passive way, even if they're not actively doing anything bad, their, their presence is discouraging to the growth of the good seed. That would be an unbeliever. But when you start getting unbelievers that are evangelistic and they're evil, that are practicing evil, that adds a whole different layer of complexity to the situation. And by extension, it refers to the evil deeds that are done by unbelievers. Okay? So the, the, the strict interpretation is it refers to unbelievers. Sons of the evil one. But when it says sons of the evil one, it's in the sense of what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You're, uh, uh, you are of your father, the devil, for you do the deeds that he does. You do the same things that he does. Right? So there's a sense in which to be the son means to share in the interests of and to follow the ways of the one that you're the son of. So sons of the evil one means they're unbelievers and that they're unbelievers engaged in evil and, and by extension, it refers to the evil deeds themselves that the evil ones do to, to bring harm to, to discourage the good seed, the sons of God, the children of the kingdom. So this is the idea of, of these tares. Now, that implies certain things. Let me just take a second with these truths that it implies. The first thing that it implies is that the righteous people are troubled by them. Can I just pause for a second? How many of you are troubled by the evil you see around you? How many of you realize it affects you? How many of you feel the weight of the impact of evil on your family, on your children, and you're trying to figure out a way how to mitigate against that? You know what I'm talking about, right? There's a world that is seeded with evil, and the, and the righteous are troubled by it. You can't help it, right? It's there. It affects you. Just by its presence, it affects you. So we have this truth that by virtue of the field being sowed with evil seed, with bad seed, the righteous, is, the righteous are going to be troubled. They are troubled by it. They're affected by it. The second thing we see is this, and this, is, this can be challenging for us, is that God tolerates, depends on how you want to say it, God tolerates or allows them and their deeds. He tolerates it. He allows it to, to take place. He, he doesn't put a stop to it. And how many of you would agree that that raises its own questions? Right? I mean, this is one of the struggles that we have. God, why don't you do something about this? All right, let's take just one form of evil that, that is not necessarily a moral evil. Can I ask you, how many of you have ever known someone who was struggling with a sickness, particularly if it was a, a potentially life-threatening sickness, and just ask yourself, God, since you can heal, why don't you? You ever ask yourself that question? God, why haven't you taken care of this already? Because... From everything that I can see, 
we could really use this person around here a little bit longer. We could really do, we could really do with more people like them on planet Earth. I, I mean, it, it really seems like, God, you're allowed to let a benefit to us slip through your fingers. Why don't you do something about this, God? It produces a certain question in us. God, God tolerates evil. Now you start thinking about moral evil and you have even more questions. God, this is an affront to your nature, to your character. This is an affront to you. God, why do you put up with this? So at, at very least, we should mention that the third truth we need to bring up is that at least part of the explanation is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, and that's, that, that's this, that God's not willing that anyone should perish. God puts up with the evil deeds of people in part because he's going to give them every opportunity to repent. He's going to give them every opportunity to repent. Give them time to repent. But God, it's making us uncomfortable. I know that but my heart goes out to them. You're going to struggle in this life, but you're going to enter into eternal glory. They're on the road to hell. Your discomfort is not a sufficient counterbalance to their eternal damnation. <laughs> you put up with their evil for a while because I want to save them. I want to save them and give them every opportunity. I'm not done giving them opportunities yet for salvation. So we have this truth that God is not willing that any should perish, that God's heart toward the tares is that he wants to save them. He wants to save them, and so he's patient with their, them, their evil, their evil deeds. He's patient. He puts up with it, he puts up with it, he puts up with it. In part because he wants to save them. All right. So the last thing we need to see here is let's not forget that people are not the primary problem. The tares are not the primary problem. The primary problem is the evil one that's sprinkling them around for his own good. Right? That's, that's what Scripture points us to. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that our wrestling is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. Right? So, in other words, I can look at this person, I can recognize the evil, I can know that I need to oppose that evil, <coughs> Excuse me, but I can do it without, without being mad at the person, without being offended at the person. They're being animated by a spirit they don't even know. They're being driven on by an evil impulse that they're not even aware of. They're dupes. They're ignorant of it. I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean that in the best way possible. Right? Most are very unaware of the darkness that they're a part of. And so I look at this person, and listen, if you want to think of it this way, think of it this way. You can, you can picture Jesus on the cross, and you can come up with all kinds of reasons. I mean... Listen, those Pharisees knew the word of God. They ought to have known better. But what Jesus says is, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. That was his view of them. They're ignorant. 
They don't see what they're doing. They can't understand it. They can't fully grasp it. We need to remember that the primary problem that we're dealing with are the, the, the primary, is the power of darkness behind the people that are carrying out so much evil. Listen, let me just pause here for a second. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care what side of the aisle you fall on for the purposes of this conversation. Please hear this. The call of Scripture is to pray for those that are in authority over you. Pray for them. Pray for them. Listen, I don't mind saying this. You can identify many of them and say, Dear Jesus, the thing I can pray for most is that man, that man or that woman needs to be saved because they are lost <laughs> and they are promoting evil. But we're called to pray for them. You see, we have the ability to recognize evil, to acknowledge that some people are promoting evil, but our reaction to them is driven by the Holy Spirit that is within us, by the call of God within us, to recognize the evil that is behind them, that is working through them. They're just puppets. They're puppets. They're mannequins. Right? God, I'm opposing the evil behind them. And I'm praying for you to save them. Praying for you to save them. Praying for you to work righteousness through them. Because right now they're working unrighteousness. We've been called to pray for them. And I, for one, have to admit that I am more inclined to complain about leaders and, and talk about bad policy and bad morality than I am to pray for them. I've spent more time talking about them than I have praying for them. And that needs to be a matter of conviction for us. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for them. Because there's power behind them. There's power moving them. We need to pray for them. So there's these tears. Our battle is not against weak mortals. Notice that phrase in Ephesians 6.12. Our, our war is not against flesh and blood. You know what that phrase is there for? Flesh and blood in Scripture is a reminder of human frailty. Flesh and flesh cuts easy and, and blood gets spilled. That's all that's keeping you alive. We are very mortal. The reminder is human beings are weak. And when you get a Satan that's behind it, powerfully moving behind it, you recognize there's power behind this person. I need to pray for him, right? So, so there's, this, there's this sense in which we have to recognize what the tares are, not the primary problem. All right, now we're getting to the balance to all of this, okay? And this is where I want us to focus. This is, this, is, this is vitally important for us. There's this thing called the field in the parable, verses 38 and 41. Jesus says it's the world. Now, we, I mentioned this briefly last week. Let me just do it real quickly this morning to remind us. The world, when Jesus says it's the world, the field represents the world. It represents the world, but not in the super strict sense of it's the world doesn't include the church. It's not that. So in verse 38, Jesus says the field is the world. But then when he talks about the world being harvested, the earth, the field being harvested, he talks about taking out from, from his kingdom all those things that, that, that offend, that defile. 
In other words, he's saying there's the field, it's the world, but in a sense it's also my kingdom. Now he's not talking strictly in the spiritual sense because how many of you know this world is in the power of Satan? But how many of you know in another sense this is my father's world? Right? Satan's the god of it right now, but ultimately it belongs to God. And he's tolerating Satan for a time. So when he talks about taking out of the kingdom all things that offend, he's, he's, ta- he's saying that the kingdom there is the same thing as the world. So the idea is simply this. It represents the world, but it includes the church that is in the world at this time. And this is vital for us to understand. It includes the church as present in the world. Here's why this is so important. Listen to this. How many of you know that the fact is that both in the world and in the church, there are bad seeds planted by Satan endeavoring to, to destroy the kingdom of God? Now I want you to hear this and I want you to follow this for a second. Let's be as technical as we can with the parable first. Please hear this. Not everybody that sits in a church is saved. I'm, I'm going to get pretty blunt for a few minutes. And some have said I'm not blunt enough, so whatever. But listen, not everybody that sits in a church is saved. My brothers and sisters, there are people in the church that have not truly, when I say in the church, I mean sitting in churches all over America today, that claim to be Christian, but they're culturally Christian. They've not been born again. They've not been born again. And please hear this. Part of the church's struggle is dealing with the influence of the thinking of unregenerate, unregenerate minds. People that are not truly born again. And listen to this. The pulpit is not exempt from this. We have a moral crisis in the church. Churches that don't know good from evil anymore. It's possible that part of the answer for that is there are unregenerate people in positions they should not be in. But they are. Planted by the evil one, leading the church astray. Now that's... That's a horrible thing to, it's a horrible possibility to consider. It's a terrible possibility to consider. But the parable is that in this field, the world and the church present in the world, there's going to come a day when, when, when this thing that he calls the world and then says is also his kingdom, it needs to be weeded. It needs the bad seed taken out of it. Creeping into the church, there will be, I, listen, I, I think of this in, in so many ways. How many of you can see a lot of applications? Are, we, we may face a day when people show up in churches across America that have a chip on their shoulder and they're just waiting for the first sermon that offends them so that they can sue. We might, we might be coming to that day. 
They're not there because they want to be there. They're there with an evil agenda. These are possibilities that we don't really like to think about. But Satan, being who he is, sows evil seed among the good for his own destructive purposes. It's possible that there are, that there are people that sit in our churches that are unregenerate. Listen, and then it's also possible that maybe some of them are actually saved, but they have been deceived by the evil one. Gotten to the place where they believe things they ought not to believe. Part of the point of the parable is this. You can't always distinguish an unregenerate person from a regenerate person who is way deceived. That's not your job. He will separate the wheat from the tares in the future. And each one will get what it deserves. Here's what we can do, however. Whether I can say for certain that a person is saved or not, what I can say is your idea is contrary to Scripture. It's wrong. It's sinful. Sinful. And my brothers and sisters, the fact that in this parable, Jesus said to the servants, leave the tares alone, does not negate lots of other scripture that calls us as Christians to discern. What it's doing is doing this. Be really careful about just blurting out and wanting to stick your hands in and pull things and, and correct things. Be careful about it. Some restraint. But that's, that's one part of the picture. The other part of the picture is that the church is a very specific part of the field of God's kingdom. And in the church, we have certain responsibilities to each other. The church, we have certain responsibilities to each other. So let me take this a little bit further. What is happening here? There we go. So Satan has his agents promoting his interests both in the world and the church. Not all who are in the visible church are saved. The restraint in this parable does not nullify other scriptures. Okay? Does not nullify other scriptures. Our job, listen to this, our job is not to identify true from false believers. We may have our suspicions, but that's God's ultimate job. However, while we must exercise caution and restraint... We must, we must exercise caution and restraint because it's possible to do harm even while you're rightly motivated. That's possible. But please notice this. This call to restraint does not undo the fact that God has given us instructions regarding how his church is supposed to function. Off the top of your heads, if I say 1 Corinthians 5, do you know what that scripture is about? I'd encourage you to go home and read it sometime during the day. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version. There was some really remarkable immorality that was taking place in the Corinthian church. Not only was it present, but it was present and known by everyone. Notice, these are both aspects of restraint, right? He, he's not, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul isn't dealing with every single little thing that's wrong with every member of the congregation. In this case, 
there was open known sin that was kind of being flaunted in front of everybody. The church had become accepting of it. And Paul says, when you're there, you better figure out in a big hurry that you need to deal with this sin. You can't just leave it alone. You can't leave it alone. Now I want to pause here and just point out how pertinent this is to our day. We have a very serious moral crisis in our country. And, and, and I'm, I want to make sure. In one sense, it's really not any different than in any previous day. There have always been moral problems where there are people. The problem is, one of the problems is that in our day, there is an absolute demand that you must accept as valid someone else's moral problem. You know, I read a news article this past week. Thank, thank God the, the tenor of the news article was that there had been such an outcry that, that it had kind of gotten squelched. But there was a public school district in this country that was for a time encouraging children to stop using terms like mom and dad because they were gender bigoted terms. Can you imagine? We have a serious moral crisis in our country and it's being shoved down the American people's throats. Force fed, force fed. My brothers and sisters, I don't want to just sit here and rail against things that are just easy to rail against. You know, there are some sins that are not common as far as we know. They're, they're not, you know, if I, if I sat here and railed against certain sins, it, most of us would shake our heads. It's like, yes, yeah, preach it, brother. But if I picked your favorite sin, there are some sins that I could talk about that would offend you. It offends me to talk about them. It's hard for me. Because I know what lurks in my heart. But my brothers and sisters... This is, this is part of what it means to be a believer. Part of what it means to be a Christ follower is to allow the Holy Spirit through the word of God to ruthlessly examine our hearts and root out the evil that is present in us. And as much as we can, we extend grace to others around us. But please hear this. We must never tolerate the attempt of the evil one to bring moral confusion to us. And there comes time when the only thing we can do is face it head on, call it for what it is, and deal with it. And Jesus' parable was not telling us to leave evil alone forever. It's not what he was saying. Let me restrain you from that fleshly impulse to just jump in and fix it. That's a legitimate call. But then we come to other scriptures and what we're called to do as the church 
is to be spiritual men and spiritual women and do the hard work of facing up to evil and dealing with it in a Christ-honoring way. And that's hard work, and it's not fun, and it's not easy. My brothers and sisters, it is vital, it is vital that we know, let me just point out a few things from 1 Corinthians 5. I encourage you to read it. In verse 12, we are told specifically, it is not our job to judge the whole world. Fascinating how we in the church have turned this around. Paul says, it's not your job to judge the world. Judge inside. Judge inside the church. Listen, judging the world is cherry picking. It's easy. It's full of evil. But they're supposed to be. Why not? That's what's natural to, to unregenerate people. God's, God is speaking to us through Paul and saying to us, what's out there is what's supposed to, it's natural for it to be out there. You take care of what's on the inside. Take a good look at the church. Judge the inside. Paul says, we're not supposed to judge those that are outside the church. Judge within the church. Pay attention to that. The second thing he says is, verse 11, it implies that we're supposed to assume another person's profession. So what Paul says is this. He says, when I told you not to eat and drink with sinners, and he gives a list of sins, he said, I wasn't talking about sinners that are out there. You'd have to leave the world to do that. I'm not telling you to, to not eat and drink with, with the world's sinners. Jesus ate and drank with them. He was concerned about them. He wanted to bring them to salvation. Paul said it's different when it's a someone who calls himself a brother. And this is where we see the importance of, not, of me not judging. Oh, it's like this. Oh, you call yourself a brother? Then if you call yourself a brother, I have a certain responsibility to relate to you in a certain way. It's not for me to figure out whether you're a brother or not. You call yourself one, so I'm going to treat you like one. So I have to deal with you like one. Them out there, I don't expect them to be brothers. I expect them to be sinful. I can spend time with them. You call yourself a brother, I've got a different responsibility to you. And if you as a brother are living in and promoting open sin, my responsibility is to help you stop. To help you stop. This is where I wish I wasn't bound by a camera. I would rather get up. I, I don't, for some reason, I want to stand at times like these. Listen to this. My brothers and sisters, this is just such hard work. It's just such hard work because there's a risk involved. Do you think, if you think for a second, man, I, I, I'm, I'm no less a man than anybody else. You know what? I would much rather show up at ministers' meetings and sit around a table with other pastors and and. If you're just talking about me and my flesh, I'd like to sit around the table and be the guy that's got the biggest church of the whole bunch. I don't want to offend people or lose people. But my brothers and sisters, God's called us to care about some things more than others. And as uncomfortable as it is, 
We cannot allow ourselves to become complacent when it comes to evil. Sometimes that's offensive. Sometimes it's unpleasant. Sometimes you have to say things to somebody that they don't want to hear. But it's the church. And in the church, sometimes we have to do things that we'd rather not have to do. Listen, we assume a person's profession, and then in verses 4 and 5, then it, be, then it means we have to be willing to take action sometimes. And Paul is, is pretty strong about this. Pretty strong about this. There was a particular sin that was rampant in this church. And Paul says, you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it. Can you help me out? Get the next one out. There we go. In fact, the way he says it is, turn him over to Satan. Turn him over. He says it for a very specific reason, though. So that they'll be saved. You know what the idea of it is? Something like this. You got a family, a church family. You're kind of all in this together. We enjoy this family feel because we're all believers in Christ. You can't have the same family sense with the world. You can have a relationship with them, but it's not the same. Turn them over to Satan means treat them as if they were an unbeliever. You can't include them in the intimate fellowship of the assembly, the fellowship of God's people. You put them out. You put them out. Out there as if they were an unbeliever. Now they've got no family. And the hope is that having no family will cause them to miss what they had and repent. Come home. Come home. Come home. It's a very unpleasant thing to think about. It's a very difficult thing to think about. The goal is ultimately their salvation, is that they would repent of their sin and be assured of their salvation. Now, it's important for us to note this. Matthew 13 does not nullify 1 Corinthians 5. Matthew 13 is not teaching us that we're supposed to be passive about evil for the rest of our lives. It's just telling us that we all need some natural restraint because in our human zeal and desire to lay hands on everything, we can get in the way and we can do some harm. But when you've taken a moment to step back, to discern, to evaluate, what you're going to discover is that the Holy Spirit will be present and he will say, you better deal with this evil. You better deal with this evil. Boy, I, I have to close, but I, I at least want to say this. My brothers and sisters, I, I've harped on this a lot. I'm going to be as plain as I can. COVID 
has produced a reshuffling of believers. People are coming, people are going. We've lost some folks, and we've gained some folks. All I want to say about that right now is this. Every believer needs to be part, a committed part, of a faithful body of believers who will sometimes call us out on things that are uncomfortable for us and we're not supposed to run. We have to be willing to face ourselves. We have to be willing to face ourselves. Right? I'm not saying that there's not times for changes. I'm not trying to, we're not trying to build a cult where nobody can leave. The mafia, once I get in, you can't get out, they'll kill you. That's not what we're trying to build here. But listen to this. We have, we have an easy in, easy out mentality as Christians today that does not resemble the early church where there was only one church in a, in a community and you were stuck there if you wanted to have a family. We've got options today. So you've got options. Exercise your right to choose. But when you do, when you do, commit, 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 and be willing to walk through both the good times and sometimes the challenging times. And just recognize that part of what we're called to do as the church is to help maintain the purity of God's people. And every once in a while, that will mean an uncomfortable conversation. Am I right? I don't like the idea. But there's sin. It exists. It's real. Satan plants it because he wants to destroy the work of God. And we need to know when it's time to stand up against it and say, we're not going to put up with this. We can't put up with this. Not with an attitude, but it needs to be addressed for your good and for the good of the body. We have to address it. It's just one example of ways in which, in which sometimes we have to understand that once we've been restrained and we've really taken time to discern and to seek the mind of God on how to address it, now it's time to follow the steps. You go to your brother. And then you take some witnesses. And then you bring it to the church. And you address it. As unpleasant as it is, you address it. God has not called his church to be passive, inactive when it comes to evil. That's not what Matthew 13 is teaching. Restraint, but not inaction. Not a lack of action. Courage. When the time comes, courage to do what needs to be done. All right. The harvest is the end of the age. And I'll just close with this one last thing that's just, I think, encouraging. And that is this. That at the end of the age, which refers to the resurrection, the final judgment, there will be a time when God will deal with separating the wheat from the tares. There will be a judgment, and it will come. God's people, notice this. God's people have indeed suffered at the hands of evil. This is a historical fact. It's a scriptural fact. God's people have suffered at the hands of the evil one. And 
God's people have often wondered why they, that happens and how long it's going to last. Can anybody relate to that? Now listen, one of the scriptures that I appreciate most is Psalm 73. There are people in scripture who actually got to the point where that question troubled them enough that it actually caused a crisis in their faith. The psalmist Asaph said something like this, being a faithful, righteous believer with correct moral standards is a waste of time <laughs> because the wicked seem to be getting ahead and the righteous are suffering. Why, why do this when they get all the benefit and we get all the suffering? It was a real crisis for him. Man, I love, I love it when somebody can say honestly, right, this is where I'm at. This is a real problem for my faith. Sometimes we put a veneer on that says everything is okay all the time. Well, everything is not okay all the time. Everything is not okay all the time. Sometimes there are things that we really wrestle with. And that's where Psalm 73 comes in. I encourage you to read Psalm 73 as well as 1 Corinthians 5. Why? Because in Psalm 73, Asaph tells us, what happens? He says, I, I wrestled through this whole issue of the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering. And I struggled with it and it became a test of my faith. My feet had almost slipped. My faith had almost failed. I, I, had, I had decided that my righteousness was worthless, that it was pointless. There was no reason for it. And then he says this. In the middle of the psalm, he says, I'm in the middle of this crisis until I came into the sanctuary of God. He comes to the place of God's presence and all of a sudden God opens his eyes and here's what he sees. Then I perceived their end. I don't get to deal with them, but they do have an end. Then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost cast them down to destruction how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. Let me tell you something. When the earth is harvested and the judgment comes, this is not a statement of joy, but there is a fire that is burning and judgment will be swift and it will be fierce. My brothers and sisters, evil is not going to have the final say, and it's not going to be tolerated forever. There are times for us to take a stand against it, especially within the church. But the point is this, the point is this, with as much restraint as God shows, because he's not willing that any should perish, and as much restraint as he calls us to, he calls us also to courage within the church when it comes to dealing with evil. And then he also reminds us there will be a day when this will be dealt with. There will be a day when this is dealt with. Evil will not get away with it forever. The wheat will be separated from the tares. And man, I can't even begin to imagine what kind of intense day that's going to be like. Can't even begin to imagine.
But what does the parable tell us? The parable tells us that while the tares are being bound up and cast into the fire, Jesus says that the wheat is going to be gathered into a storehouse, into a barn, that is, into the presence of God, into heaven. And oh, that God's people, he says, the sons of, of God, are going to shine in glory in that moment. There's going to be a gloriousness about it. So I'm just, I'm just ending this with this call. We, we need to pray that God gives us wisdom. We need to pray for wisdom because there is a time for restraint and, there, and then there's a time for action. There's a time for restraint. My brothers and sisters, there are times when my flesh just wants to lay hold <laughs> of some people and some things. But too often when I do it, it doesn't produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness that God wants to produce. There's been some other times when I've gotten to the place where I've said, God, I don't want to deal with this. And God said, yeah, but you have to. But you have to. Lord, give us the courage to deal with the things we need to deal with. Give us the courage to face the things we need to face. And if I could, and if I could say it this boldly to finish, it would be, my brothers and sisters, may God give us the courage to walk together committedly enough to Christ and committedly enough to one another that we actually allow ourselves to be the church that God intends us to be. And part of that is the discomfort of correction. None of us is exempt from it. It's the discomfort of God help us to to walk with each other in a way that sin is purged from our lives and that righteousness is promoted amongst your people. Amen?